Pray, dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank and praise you for your goodness, for your grace, and Lord, for your word. And we ask that you would just bless us tonight as we study your word, and Lord, that you would encourage us. And uh, many of these things we've know we've been over them before, but Lord, we ask that you would once again show us how great you really are, and what a wondrous gift. This book called the Bible is. Bless us now and encourage us in our service for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you need an outline, wave your hand there. I think uh, Stephen has a few more left in the back. But uh, we are going to move on to a new uh, subject in our study of theology. Uh, We're going to move on to bibliology. That is the study or the doctrine of the Bible, the Word of God, and uh, many people said, well, we probably should have started with this one, since it is the foundation of everything that we believe, and uh, that is true, but uh, I actually just wanted to do things a little different in this study and start with the study of Jesus Christ and God himself, and, and then move out from there, because truly God is the source of what we have, and um, again, uh, uh, tonight, uh, uh, point A here, we've got seven subpoints. Each one of those could be a complete 45-minute lesson all in themselves. And uh, we uh, uh, just, for the sake of moving through the study, I'm going to be very brief about many of these things. But... The Bible makes some claims. Uh, There are things in the Bible that the Bible says uh, about itself. And and I will tell you that you ought to read what a book says about itself. I mean, sometimes, uh, how many of you have ever had to read uh, an audit? Uh, you've been uh, in a company or something, and and they audit the company. I remember um, was in a preacher's meeting somewhere, and the uh, the preacher, uh, the 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 man who was talking to us was explaining that many churches, in order to prove their books and stuff, will have them audited. It's a very very expensive process, and he said, "Let me explain to you how." Accountants rip off churches. And so he opens it up, and on the first page, it says, Disclaimer. This audit does not necessarily reflect the actual workings of this church and will not be authoritative uh, in legal matters. And they had paid like five or $6,000 for this company to do an audit, and they didn't even read the first page that said that this audit is basically worthless. It's just a bunch of numbers on a piece of paper. And if you finish the paragraph, uh, uh, just to fill you in on the rest of it, it basically said that the church's records were so poor that there was no way that an actual audit could be performed by their company or any company, but they still charged them $5,000 and gave them 100 pages of printed material, and it looked really good unless you read the first paragraph. Um, Sometimes if we just would read what 
people claim. How many of you know that Muhammad, who claims to be the human author of the Quran, was illiterate? That he could not read or write in any language. And yet, he claims that by God, he was given power to write the words of the Quran. Now, should that make you just a little nervous about the veracity of a man named Muhammad, who is certifiably illiterate, cannot read or write, and yet claims to have written, uh, I don't know exactly how long the Quran is, I think it's about two-thirds the size of your Bible, something like that, claims to do all that writing and is totally illiterate. That would bother me. It's interesting that when God picked men to write the words of his Bible, they were some of the most educated and some of the most plain of their day. But even Peter, the fisherman, whom we might say was an ignorant hillbilly from Galilee, if we were putting him in modern terms, he would have spoke... Aramaic, he would have read and understood and been able to write in Aramaic, Hebrew, and possibly Latin with a smattering of Greek in there. How many people can do four languages in this room right now? I mean, my hand's not up. I don't do four. Uh, I struggle with one. How how many people just struggle with good old English, Uh, let alone all the other languages? That's one of the jokes of our friends in French-speaking Canada. Say, so you know what an American is? Say, so, no. It's somebody who speaks only one language. And uh, they, they just enjoy uh, rubbing that in a little bit. But I, I told one of them one time, I said, but when you speak English, you don't need to speak any other languages. <laughs> Amen. And uh, that's why you learned English. Amen. Uh, he didn't like that. But... Uh, You need to read the claims. I mean, Sun Young Moon, if you'll read his own testimony, he claims that Jesus appeared to him on three different occasions, begging him and pleading with him to fix and straighten out the errors that Jesus created during his earthly ministry. Now, if you wonder why I call Sung Young Moon a blasphemer and an idiot and, and other derogatory terms, that's why. That's, that's what he claims. Anybody to make those claims says that Jesus was so ignorant and inept, he picked a guy that doesn't even know how to do his income taxes to straighten out all of his messes. Because Sung Young Moon spent several years in prison for not properly handling money of the church. Uh, or the organization that he started, and that Jesus waited from 33 A.D. all the way up to 1950, whatever it was, to find some guy to straighten out the whole world. Now, if Jesus had actually have any, if the Jesus of Sun Young Moon had any character at all, would he have waited until 1950 to straighten out the mess that he made? Uh, And if Jesus is the God of the Bible, he didn't make a mess because he couldn't. 
And so we obviously know that Sung Young Moon's talking about some other Jesus who's really messed up, that really just didn't care for 1,900 years of history, and all of a sudden woke up and said, Hey, you know, we've got such a sterling example of a human being here that we're going to straighten everything out. I mean, bizarre stuff. And yet, people follow this guy. They worship him. They, they pray to him. They read his books. And, and so many things. Yet, this book, and I didn't put scripture references down because there's too many of them. Uh, I think it was, um, now I'm even going to forget it. It starts with a B. Anyway, uh, one of the systematic theologies I have on my uh, Bancroft's shelf said over 3,800 times in your Bible, the words are attributed directly to God. Thus saith the Lord, God said, Jesus spake, and the word of the Lord came unto, and similar phrases. There's only 1,100 chapters in your Bible, and 3,800 times the words are attributed to being, uh, having an origin in God himself. Uh, I think that that would be sufficient to any mind who, who wants to understand what the Bible claims to be, that these are the very words of God. And yet, uh, when I was a student in Bible college, how tricky people are. I had a professor. He said, I believe the Bible contains the words of God. Do you get the difference? I could set an empty Coke can on the pulpit and say, this can contains Coca-Cola. Now, would I be right? Yeah, I'd be right. I mean, have you ever tried to drink all the Coke out of a can? I mean, it just never happens. There's a few little drops in there. Uh, I mean, there's Coke in that can. But if I filled it up with water and tried to sell it to you as Coca-Cola, what would I be? I'd be a liar. I'd be a thief. I'd be a lot of other things. And you see, this is what people have always tried to do. In fact, if we want to start the argument over God's Word, we go back to Genesis chapter 3, and the serpent spoke to Eve in the garden, and what was his first words? Yea, hath God said. Did God really say that? And then he misquoted Scripture. He said, you can't eat of all the trees of the garden. Oh, no, no, we can eat of all the trees of the garden. There's only one we can't eat of. Well, what the devil was trying to do was get Eve's attention on the one thing that God said she couldn't do instead of the 999,000 things that God said she should be doing. And that's where we have a problem in our life and in our day. And when it comes to the word of God, the... Let's go to the, let's look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you do not have these verses memorized, uh, you just need to. You need to put them in your heart and in your soul. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, that word inspiration simply means 
to breathe in. When you breathe in, you inspire. When you breathe out, you expire. When you stop breathing out, you are expired, uh, dead. And God said, I have given Scripture by my breath. I have breathed my words into the men that wrote them. Now, the nice thing about this is God did not overwrite the personalities of the men who wrote. We can see different ways that Peter would approach a subject versus the way Paul would approach a subject versus the way that James wrote. And Jude comes in and he's entirely different in his thing. But the, the, the context of the scripture is all the same. And it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Do you realize that Moses penned the first words of our Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books, about 1,500 years before Jesus was born? Now, that's almost 2,000 years ago, so... Let's just round off the figures, and, and I'm going to round down because it's not quite 2,000 years. It's not quite 1,500 years. So we got a book that's about 3,400 years old. Does anybody know any other books that are 3,400 years old? Can you sit still, Mr. Jason? Thank you. Um, how about the... Uh, the Code of Hammurabi is probably pretty close to 3,400 years old. Uh, the Gilgamesh Epic. How many of you have heard of that great book? I mean, it was very popular in the uh, early Sumerian Empire. How many people know who the Sumerians were? Uh, <laughs> if you've studied history, you've heard these terms. And I'm being a little sarcastic, being quite a bit, uh, because... The only place you would find any of these things is in an academic library. Yet, this book can be purchased anywhere in the free world. And there's parts of the world that just aren't free. Uh, but you can still get the Bible even in the not-so-free world if you want one bad enough. The simple truth is, there's no book that's ever been printed as much as this book has been printed. It says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And, and, and let's just take 30 seconds here. And it's profitable for doctrine. That's what we're studying. We've been 16 weeks studying doctrine. And you know what? We could have easily turned the 16 weeks that we've already done into 32 weeks. And it wouldn't have been hard to make 48 weeks out of the 16 lessons that we've already had. And yet we've got a lot, of, a lot more that we could do. And I mean, this could be an end. We could study doctrine until Jesus comes back. We really could. And uh, doctrine is what we believe. But. There's a difference between doctrine and preference. There's a difference between doctrine and tradition. 
I mean, we've even in the short little history of our church developed a few little traditions. We sing a song at the end of our regular services. You know, we've been singing the same song since uh, October 8th, 1992. I kind of like that tradition. I like to leave the building with take the name of Jesus with you. Uh, I, I don't know that back then I said we're going to do that every service in perpetuity till Jesus comes back. And we may change it someday, but I don't see any need of changing that. That's a tradition. That's not doctrine. It's just something we do. But doctrine is what cannot be compromised. It's what the Word of God says. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. How many of you have read the Bible and found out something you were doing or allowing in your life was wrong? anybody ever had that happen to them? If you've read your Bible much, you should. It should happen to you. That is reproof. It is blame expressed to the face. The Bible has the right to tell you the difference between what is right and what is wrong. For correction. Uh, I've always used this example. Uh, I remember when I was a mechanic, there's, you know, you, you would be sitting there looking at an engine and you knew something was wrong, but you didn't know what was wrong. And somebody would invariably come up and say, Hey, did you happen to check the... Yeah, that was yesterday. Will you please just leave me alone and let me find out what is wrong here. I don't need nitpickers. I need somebody who can help me fix the problem. Amen? And I love the Bible. It tells you what's wrong, but it corrects. tells you how to make it right. And then it gives you instruction in righteousness so you don't do the same dumb thing over and over and over again. That's what the Bible is. And it gives us a purpose here that the man of God might be perfect, complete, truly furnished, completely all the way through your life, furnished unto good works, which God hath before ordained. I'm sorry, that you may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I was quoting another scripture here. But God wants us to have a life of good works. And what defines good is what's written down in the Bible. Amen? And the Bible claims preservation. Now, I I don't get this, how people read their Bible and they say, well, we understand that God gave us a perfect word, and, but, but it's been corrupted by man. Well, would you look with me at a few verses? Psalm 119. I love this verse. Verse 89, it says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And the first thing one of those smart Alex say, yeah, it's settled in heaven, but they argue about it on earth. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, what's it say there? Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth and it continueth. We go on down through here. The Bible tells us that we have a word. You know, if God settled His word forever. Don't you think he gave it to man? 
Amen. What kind of God would it be that would give his word to man and then allow man to corrupt it and have no idea what God's word really is? Now, if you listen to people, that's what you'll get. But go back to Psalm chapter 12. And again, we could take the whole night and just spend on Psalm chapter 12. But we're just going to look at two verses here. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation for how long? Uh, Is this part of forever? God said he would preserve his words. And, And he uses an illustration here from earth from uh, the work of man, he says, purified as silver, as silver tried in a furnace of earth. Now, just very quickly, most of the time when you purified silver, you would purify it with an open fire. It had a lower enough melting point that you could melt the ore uh, with a regular fire And the little bit of silver that made contact with oxygen in the atmosphere, silver oxide, what they make all your mirrors with today, ladies, uh, was just scraped off the top and thrown away. It was not that big of a deal to lose a, a little bit of silver. But if you were purifying gold, it's a big deal to lose an ounce of gold. Right? About twelve, fourteen hundred dollars today. Do you realize that at one time the five dollar gold piece that was minted in the United States was minted from an ounce of gold, and that was the market value of an ounce of gold? If you had five dollars of that money today, you would be quite well to do. But that's a whole other subject. When they purified gold, they would use a furnace. You know why? Because the furnace, the flames in the furnace would consume all of the oxygen in the atmosphere of the furnace. And therefore, you had no contact with uh, with uh, elements that would pollute or uh, you had no loss. If you put a pound of gold uh, into the furnace to purify it, guess what you got back out? You got a pound back out. God was using an illustration. You didn't purify silver in a furnace of earth because it wasn't worth the effort and the expense. But God said, my word is like silver... Because silver is always a picture of judgment in the Bible, the discernment between what is right and what is wrong, discernment between what is good and what is best. That's what God's Word always does. And he says, not one bit of it's going to be lost, just as if it were purified in a furnace of earth. You could put it in there one time, it's pure. You could put it in there seven times, but guess what? You're not going to lose anything. And that's what God is saying about his word. Jesus said not one jot or one tittle. I met a guy who actually wrote a thousand page paper on what a jot was. 
Yeah. He's, he's got a degree. THD, I think, I believe Brother Sharavia stands for total head damage. Uh, not doctorate of theology. Uh, but a thousand pages. I actually saw the manuscript. Uh, I said, Lord, please don't ever let me get that educated. I don't think that's going to help me be a good preacher. But I'll tell you what, whatever a jot and whatever a tittle is, they're there. Uh, they haven't disappeared. Uh, they are preserved and God has kept his word because he said so. And so we have... This book claims to be the very words of God. It claims to be given by the very breath of God. It claims to be preserved by God. It claims that only by the work of the Holy Spirit of God can you truly understand what is in this book. That's why commentaries are so dangerous is because many of them are written by people who have no personal relationship with God. We have people translating the Bible who don't even believe what the Bible teaches. I remember talking to someone who worked on uh, one of the uh, Tagalog New Testaments and said, I'm sorry, eternal security is just not in the New Testament. Well, that's rather obvious. You were the translator. You didn't put it there. I mean, it's in this New Testament. It's in every New Testament that's been honestly translated out of the original languages. It's in the, it's in the books that were written. Jesus said, they shall never perish. How much more security do you want than that? And yet this translator said, it's not in there. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where the problem is. Uh, it's not with the Bible. It's with the translators. It's with the people who handle it. You must have the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Second Peter chapter 1. All things that pertain unto life and godliness are given unto us through the knowledge of Him. And where are you going to learn about Him talking about Jesus Christ? Well, the epistle of Barnabas tells a story of how Jesus was a little boy and made a sparrow out of dirt on the Sabbath day and broke the Sabbath. Well, you know what? If that story is true, then your whole Bible is wrong. But, of course, your Bible is right, and that story is fiction. In fact, it's so recognized as fiction as the genre of books to which it has belonged has been given the beautiful title of the pseudepigrapha. We'll get to that in a little bit. Pseudo, pseuda, the meaning false writings. And remember, what's his name? Brown. Which, what's his first name? Ron? Brown? The Da Vinci Code? Uh, I think that's his name. And all these people got shook up because of things that were supposed to be in the Bible. You know, Mr. Brown was quoting the false writings. And if you'll study anything about Mr. Brown's work, he was quite eclectic in his quoting of the false writings. Meaning that he only picked out the little bit tidbits that he liked and didn't even bother keeping it in the context of the false writings. So he was... 
uh, honestly, if we want to evaluate his work, falsely quoting the false writings. That's why we don't spend much time on that. Because if you want to believe that stuff, you have to make a choice. Most people would, might say, well, I never knew that. Well, you do now. And let's move on forward and let's hold to the truth that is preserved in the Word of God. The Bible claims to be the sum total of God's revelation to mankind. Galatians chapter 1, Paul said, If we or an angel from heaven, isn't it interesting how both Joseph Smith and Muhammad claimed that an angel from heaven showed up to them and gave them additional revelation. When Paul said very clearly in Galatians chapter 1 that if an angel from heaven appeared and gave you any doctrine or anything that's not already written down in this book, that you're to count that person accursed. Now, if we'll just read the Bible, read the last chapter of the book of Revelation, what does it say? It says, if you're going to add unto these words, God's going to add unto you the plagues of the book. Uh, that's some pretty bad stuff, uh, to put it extremely mildly. Only about three-quarters of the world's population dies in seven years. Uh, if, we were, if, if the tribulation were to start today, in seven literal years, according to the word of God, five and a half billion people would die. Stop, and that's, that's unimaginable. I mean, they're going on strike because they're having to bury a couple hundred people from Ebola there in one country because uh, they're not getting paid and uh, whatever else. But the simple truth of the matter is when you talk about five and a half billion people dying in seven years, that they're not going to get them all buried. It, it's not possible. It, it's beyond... The scope, and Jesus himself said, except those days be shortened, there would be no one left. That's what the Bible teaches us. We need to get a hold of God's word. He said, if you take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God's going to erase your name out of the book of life, and you're going to be eternally condemned to the lake of fire and eternal separation from God. I'll tell you what, I don't want to mess with this book. It's not worth it. In fact, the greatest truth I have found in my life, the greatest blessings in my life, the greatest joy and peace in my life, comes from a simple surrender and obedience to the words that are. In this book. How many could say amen to that? And so as we start with our study of the Bible, let's read what the Bible says about itself. And I will challenge you that no other book in history makes the claims about itself that the Bible makes. No other book claims to have the accuracy, the history, and then we come to the argument, and we'll just get started into this tonight, is, okay, 
If the Bible is the word of God, then which Bible? What books of the Bible? What, what Bible do I obey? And so then comes a term that was invented by all these smart people that are supposed to know all of these things. It's called the canon of Scripture. That means the list of books that belong in the Bible. Okay, so we have the canon of Scripture for the Old Testament. Uh, they are simply the Jewish Scriptures. Uh, according to Bishop Usher, Moses would have written the scriptures about 1491, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Malachi, the Italian prophet, showed up about 400, I'm sorry, Malachi, the Jewish prophet, showed up about 400 A.D., and our New Old Testament was complete about 400 A.D. So you got a time period there of roughly 1499 years, uh, 89 years. And, uh, no, 91 years. There we go. And so, uh, that, that is where we get our Bible, the Jewish scriptures. You know what? There's not a lot of argument over this book belongs in here and this book doesn't belong in here. I mean, some people have argued about the book of Esther, uh, not being in the Bible, uh, not belonging in the Bible because uh, it doesn't mention the name God anywhere in the Bible. I mean, in the book of Esther. And that's true. The name God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. Uh, how many of you have read the book of Esther? How in the world could the things that happened in the book of Esther happen if God didn't make them happen? It is the story of God's preservation of the Jewish people. And by the way, why did Mordecai have all those problems with Haman and wouldn't do him reverence and all these other things? Where in the world would Haman have gotten an idea that he wasn't supposed to bow down and worship men? Was that something Mordecai made up all on his own? Or may have been that first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, and the second one, thou shalt not bow thyself down unto them and make images of them. Uh, just maybe Mordecai was influenced by the scriptures. Uh, I believe that he was. And you say, well, not everything Mordecai did was really what we would call honorable and right and all this. Uh, have you looked in the mirror lately? Not everything anybody's done would match that test because we're all human beings. Yet God still came in and did an incredible work using Mordecai and Esther and Ahasuerus and even old Haman to perform his will. As God always does. Amen? And that's the strongest argument they have. They say the book of Daniel was a history. It's too accurate. I love that. Uh, God can't be accurate then. Not that accurate. That's, that's just too much. You can't foretell events like that. Uh, well, if you could foretell events like that in human history and tell world history with such accuracy before it happened, might not it be an evidence that Daniel actually got his information from God instead of from Daniel. 
But we're not going to allow that. Okay. Well, be dumb if you want, but I'll just believe in God. And I'll believe in this book called the Bible. In the New Testament, we have the story of Jesus and his church as written by those that believed in him. And the first believers of the church were Jewish. Our Bible is a Jewish book. Completed, um, I, I put 33 because that's roughly the year everybody gives for the crucifixion to 95, which is roughly the time John finished the, the book of Revelation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's a group of books called the Apocrypha. Uh, a larger group of books called the Pseudepigrapha. And depending on whose definition you read, the Apocrypha is actually part of the Pseudepigrapha. Uh, I, I've always used it in, in, in a different way. The Apocrypha were the books that were written by Jewish people. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Pseudepigrapha were the false writings that cropped up at the end uh, of the time that our New Testament was written. And that's where you get the epistle of Barnabas and, uh, and the epistle of, uh, of uh, uh, Third Timothy and, and uh, Second Titus and Third Peter. And, and, of course, these were books that we know that the people who read them, the people who looked at them in their day said, this isn't, no way. This this just not part of Scripture. And therefore, they came under the classification of the false writings. Uh, the Apocrypha was actually translated uh, in the first editions of our King James Bible, but it was put in a separate section. Now, we have people arguing about which books belong in the Bible, and, and you always get somebody along that says, the missing books of the Bible. The lost books of the Bible. Now, we, we only have two options for someone who would use that statement. One is a level of ignorance that is unknown in the educated world. Uh, that means someone who has just talking about something they never read, never studied, uh, have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, politicians playing theologians. Uh, the other option is people are trying to be deceitful. And that's, unfortunately, the largest category where this comes in. Uh, how many of you remember the uh, manuscript that was discovered that said, Here lies the bones of Jesus, the husband of Mary. Does anybody remember that? The, this was two or three years ago. It was uh, some Harvard scholar and, uh, who, who had released this to the press. And, of course, the buzz was, oh, Jesus died and we have his bones and his wife was Mary. He married Mary Magdalene, just like they said. And it was all over the place. And came out a week later that... Uh, she knew it was false, and she had actually created the document and just wanted to see what people would do if such information hit the press. Um, they did a thing a few years ago. In fact, some stupid, I'm sorry, that's the only word that works, some stupid Christian even made a, a television documentary and asked the question, would it hurt your faith if we found the bones of Jesus? 
I'm sitting here. Would it hurt my faith? I would have no faith. Because my faith is in a resurrected Christ, not in a dead one. You see, if you can have faith in Jesus, even though he didn't resurrect from the dead, you're not believing in the Jesus of the Bible, and you do not have saving faith, and you're not going to heaven. Uh, there, there's just no way. It doesn't work that way. And yet people have come up with all of these things. You see, the bottom, the short story here is, the Bible was complete about 95 A.D., It was already being translated into other languages as early as 150 A.D. You say, how do we know that? Because people were quoting it in different languages from different languages that early. They'll make statements even in the encyclopedias that, well, the old Syriac... Some claim that it was done before the beginning of the second century. But we know that's not true. And they've come up with this term called the um, Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And according to the tradition, this was done by 70 Jewish elders in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, a great city of Jewish people. Isn't that right? And uh, this was done 200 years before Jesus was born. In fact, Jesus quoted the Septuagint many times. Uh, Do you realize there was no single copy of anything that could even be called a Septuagint before 1450-something A.D.? And that if you'll read carefully these quote-unquote scholars will use the word Septuagint for any portion of Scripture, of Hebrew Scripture, it was translated into Greek. Well, isn't that a little dishonest? Uh, there is no historical evidence that 70 Jews of any kind ever sat down and forgot their beloved Hebrew and embraced the Greek language. And Tychus Epiphanes would have loved that. In fact, he tried to do that, but it didn't work. And he basically got the Maccabees going there in the intertestamental period of time. But we come down and the Catholics love to make the claim that they settled the canon of Scripture in 1546 at the Council of Trent. You know how they did that? They added the Apocrypha to the canon of Scripture. You know what they were saying? These books were not part of the canon of Scripture until we said so in 1546. Therefore, we've settled the issue giving testimony to the fact that the real church didn't use those books and never had. And the reformers came along and said, we've settled the issue of the canon of the scriptures. When Luther published his Bible, it had the same books that your Bible has. The only problem was Luther was using an old Latin Bible that belonged to the Baptist the Waldensians that dated back to about 150, 175 A.D., and it happened to have the same books that yours has in it. You know what the Reformers did? They just embraced the books that were being used by the true church. And everybody claims to have settled the issue when 
Actually, if you study the churches, the churches settled the issue a long time before, and they were translating the Bible and putting it into other languages long before anyone was even keeping records of what was going on. You know why? Because Jesus said, go ye into all the world, and that's exactly what they were doing. And, of course, the church never went anywhere without the Bible, the true church. And so we have God's Word. You can trust what you're holding in your hand. The canon of Scripture was settled by the churches long before 200 A.D. It was already being passed around. It was already being printed. It was already being translated and they'll argue that, well, the book of Hebrews really wasn't accepted until the, the third century. By the way, the third century was 200 A.D., according to their reckoning. First century, zero to 100. Second century, 100 to 200. Third century, 200 to 300. And, and so, listen, they, they just playing games to try to cast aspersion on this book. If you need me, the only way you can understand the Bible is you have to come to me or you have to go to some group of scholars. Then the Bible is closed to you because you have to have somebody help you. Now, if you can't read English, you're going to need some help. You know, if you can't read anything, you're going to have to learn how to read. That's all there is to it. We can't, we can't deal with that. But let me tell you something. The Bible is not closed to scholarship. It's not the ownership of a church or a group of churches or a group of preachers. The Bible is God's word and he's given it to the world. And we're accountable for the things that are in here. And so as we study our Bible and the doctrine of the Bible the first thing I want you to understand is this book has authority. It is the very words of God recorded for us today. That means we have an obligation to read it, to understand what it says, and to be obedient to it. And all God's people said, Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you tonight. We thank you for your word. Lord, We just ask that you would help us get past what everybody says about it and just believe it and just obey it. And Lord, that you would give us grace to be your servants till you come. We'll take just a moment. If you need to slip out of your seat, the altar's open. And we'll sing and be on our way home. Just a moment to pray.